Well, this summer we have devoted uh, the preaching time to knowing God by heart. Um, today, um, it's been a blessing to hear you worship the Lord and see you worship the Lord and see you gather uh, to worship the Lord and to give him the honor that he deserves and to pause at the beginning of a week on the Lord's Day and say, you're, you're my king, you're my God, and, and, I, and I honor you. You know, we come to church because we get something out of it. We come to church because we have other people there that need what we have to minister to them, but the main reason we assemble is because we, we want to give honor to the Lord and because he's been so good to us and because we love him and we know he's our God and he is a consuming fire and we answer to him and we fear God and we love God and we treasure God. Uh, tonight, uh, just a couple of little reminders. If you're, if you, uh, last week I talked about praying and I have been praying in, in a different way than I ever had before and it's been a, a real neat uh, week that way. I want to pray for you specifically, and I mean you. Um, and so he, if you would like to help me uh, pray for you specifically, I'm literally praying for you, every one of you, every week. Um, but some of you, I don't have your picture, and, and I want to put your picture in my little prayer uh, uh, app or whatever I'm using there. So if you could get me your and if you don't think I have your name or specifics about you, and you're not sure I know your name, and there would be a few of you I don't, I want to know your name. I want to know how I can pray for you. And I want to pray for you. The deacons the same way. They want to pray for you and, and others, other pastors. But I'm talking about me here right now. And I want to lead the church and, and praying for you personally every week at least. And so can I ask you to help me by sending uh, the church office a digital copy of your most flattering picture that you want me to see every week? Uh, or something that looks really bad so that I uh, pray desperately for you. Um, send me a picture of you, and, and if you're not a member yet, what's that all about anyway? But if you're not a member yet, then send me your picture, and I'll pray that you fall under heavy conviction and you become a member of the church. And, but I'll pray for you even if you haven't become a member yet. Um, I, I want to I love you and, 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 and care for you in that way. W- would you do that? So give me the details that you want me to have, and please send me your picture. Our, our American culture has a really messed up, distorted view of what God is like. They really do. They, they have a hunch, some of which is true. Much of what the American culture thinks about God is not true. They have a distorted caricature of who God is. And what's scary is, even in the church sometimes, we get a little bit confused about what God is really like. And if we want to know God by heart, we have to have a clear picture of who he really is. You want a biblical picture of who God really is. How crazy would it be for us to follow a God when we meet him someday? It's like, oh... You look a lot different than I thought you did. Or God forbid, you don't even meet God. You meet God in judgment because you didn't know God. We want a biblical view. So today's message is going to be really rich with lots of scripture. And so you're going to have to really kind of uh, be, and here's why. It, the, the, the kind of uh, homiletical method I'm using today is just to bowl you over with scriptures. We don't always do it that way. Sometimes we focus on one or work our way through teaching one. This is just kind of going to be a barrage of, see, look, the Bible says this. So that's kind of what's going to happen. You might want to go get a bagel now if you're not ready for that. So God, for God's love, here's an example of a distorted caricature of, of God. Sometimes we have to fight against the creating a God of our own liking, a God that kind of looks like us. 
He has the same strengths and weaknesses we have. He's very tolerant with our weaknesses. He's very hard on people that don't have our strengths. Uh, sometimes because we are all idolaters at heart, we can have a bent toward bowing to our very own safe kind of manageable deity making God the way we want him to be. Here's an example in, in, in God's love. For God's love, for instance, we've been talking about God's love and his goodness, his graciousness, and other characteristics. But for God's love to be perfect, his hatred also has to be perfect. Here's an example. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. And the very next word is a word for hatred. A poor hate that which is evil. So if you love like God loves, you hate what God hates. You have a perfect love and a perfect defined hatred. It's just an example. You can't truly love without anger against that which is evil. I love Lois. I love her with all of my heart. I'm supposed to be willing to lay down my life for her. I'm not a thug. I'm not that tough. My, I have my guns and my ammunition in different places in my house, which I should probably put together. But if you tried to hurt her, I would be as dangerous as I know how to be. And my resistance to you would be as dangerous as I knew how to be. You would probably, you'd probably keel over laughing when I tried. But, but nonetheless, because I love her, my hatred toward what you were doing for her would be perfect, at least as, as humanly possible. If we love God, we love what God loves, and we hate what God hates. He hates hypocrisy. He hates oppression. He hates lying. He hates gossip. He hates sexual perversion. He hates the murder of the innocent for money. He hates Planned Parenthood. I'm just saying. He hates gossiping Christians. He hates it when Christians gossip. He hates it when he hates your besetting sin more than you hate it. And you should be glad that he does. Do you do you hate what God hates? Do you hate perfectly like like he hates? He's he he has a hatred for sin. So God's wrath is even now, the Bible says, is burning against sin. And nothing will stop God's wrath against sin. And nothing can stop God's wrath against sin. And it's not a figure of speech. It's real, genuine, sinless wrath. God is a God of wrath. That's what the Bible teaches. And and we must not be Bible Christians and then mumble or be apologetic or, or embarrassed about the wrath of God and the justice of God because the Bible has so much to say about it. God, by his nature, is just or righteous, the, the word is the same word usually in the Bible and translated either just or righteous depending on the context. God is perfectly just, he's perfectly righteous, he's perfectly holy, and his wrath then is, a, is an expression that has to happen based on when his perfect ra- justice, his perfect righteousness, and his perfect holiness are violated. He has a settled disposition against that, and that's what the Bible calls the wrath of God. He's the only one who has the right to have that kind of perfect wrath. And God's wrath is his anger against sin. And, and that's good news and that's bad news. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. In the book of Exodus, chapter 33, chapter 34, here's what the first of 34 says. This is an example of God's talking to Moses and showing Moses his glory. And, and he says, now the Lord descended. This is actually in Exodus 34, 1. The Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him, Moses there, proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression by sin. You're like, I like that about God. He's merciful. He's kind. He's gracious. He's long-suffering. But then it also says, and by no means clearing the guilty. 
This is consistently what the Bible teaches about God, that he is loving, but a part of his character is his just hatred for sin, his wrath against sin. Listen carefully. Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, a bit of a lengthy passage. Listen as I read this. Talking about what God is like, you want to know what God is like? Here's what God is like. God is jealous. The Lord avenges. The Lord avenges, and he's furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great power, and will not acquit at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, in the clouds, in the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before the indignation of God? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will consume his enemies. This is not the God of popular culture, but this is the God of the Bible. Um, The Bible teaches this consistently, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And I want to prove that. Today, the Bible teaches consistently, Old Testament and New, the character of God is the same Old Testament and New. God can allow no sin to go unpunished. He will allow no good to go unrewarded because of his perfect character. And that is his justice. His justice is he will not allow, cannot allow any sin to go unpunished. And he cannot and will not allow any good to go unrewarded because he's perfectly just. And this is the part of the beauty of his character. This is a TV program. I won't name it because it might get bad and then you'll blame me. But so far, so good. The, the character is a benevolent character who um, sees things that aren't right and he does things to correct them. Even though everyone else around him is being unjust, what you like about this character is really it's his justice. You're attracted to his character. He's a likable character because in a number of different accounts, even when other people around him can't see what's right, he has this sense of justice. There's a beauty in that. And God has this beauty in perfection. His justice is absolutely perfect. And his power meets with with his justice. A.W. Pink wrote a book about the attributes of God in which he said, this is interesting, and some of us wouldn't think this, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Did you know that? You say, ah, you're saying that God is characterized more by wrath than he is by love. No, that's not what I said. What A.W. Pink said is you study a concordance, you just see there are more references to his anger and fury than there are to his love. But all of those references are an expression of his love, right? right? If there is a hell then only a loving person warns you about that. Every warning in the Bible about hell is God's love, right? Every warning in the Bible about wrath is God's love, you understand? But there's more in the Bible about God's wrath than there is about God's love, but it's all God's love. But it's interesting to think that, isn't it? J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, has two sections on the holiness of God and and on the wrath of God, very well written. He writes this, now the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as his faithfulness, as his power, or as his mercy. The wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as his mercy. It must be so, for there is no blemish whatever in God, not the slightest defect in the character of God. Yet there would be if wrath 
were absent from him. His character is the same, Old Testament and New. He's beautifully immutable. In other words, he never changes, and that's good. He's perfect, and you wouldn't want him to change. He's, the modern church needs to be very careful that we're not too quick to dismiss the wrath of God or redefine the wrath of God because we're embarrassed about it. Now, now here's a New Testament example. Let me give you some New Testament examples so you know I'm not making this up. What does it say in Romans 1? In Romans 1, I think it's in verse 18. The first word, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Is that Old Testament or New? That's the heart of the New Testament. And that's the key of that passage. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Later in verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God. This is the New Testament. Talking about the righteous judgment of God. About the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 2, in verse 2, it says, we know the judgment of God is according to truth. In chapter 2 of Romans, in verse 3, it says, who can escape the judgment of God? It's amazing how much the Bible says about God's wrath and about his judgment. All of these are expressions of his perfect character and his consistent love because the reality of it, he warns us about his wrath. So hear this, young person, you're making your way in the world, right? And you're thinking, who am I going to live for? What am I going to do? Well, I will just tell you this. Think about this. You'll face God someday. You'll face God someday. So I would be prepared to face God. However you live, whatever you do, wherever you go, Be prepared to face a holy God. Young people, listen, you will face a holy God someday. And so that's just some, and old people will face a holy God sooner probably than the young people will. So you're just thinking about that. This is Romans 2. It says in verse 5, treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's a New Testament passage speaking in no uncertain terms about the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, the wrath of God. You want to think of that when you go out on Friday night and your friends want to party in club, or when you are, you know, tempted to gossip and a holy God looks down on what you're doing and where you're going. Verse 16 of chapter 2 of Romans says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example from the New Testament. Often people talk about sexual immorality, which is like rampant in our culture, and all of us are touched by it, sexual temptations and so forth. And many have said that those who practice sexual sins like lust or, or fornication or adultery or sexual confusion, that they really don't need to be concerned about God's judgment because God is benevolent, he's kind, he's loving, he's understanding, and he's patient. Well, let's just take that to the New Testament and let's see. What does the New Testament say about sexual sin and God's judgment? Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, what's the next word? The wrath of God is coming on the children of disobedience. And this isn't an isolated passage. The scriptures warn that People who yield to immorality will face the wrath of God. That's serious. Ephesians 5 says it in an even more, it says adds more. Therefore, be, this is Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as dear children, walk in love. Um, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints or filthiness or foolish talking or coarse jesting. This we know, no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That ought to cause you to tremble. That ought to put the fear of God in you. Let no one deceive you with empty words, like even if he's a pastor, 
<laughs> Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the Bible says, the wrath of God is coming upon the children of disobedience. You do not be partakers with them. Gentlemen, that would mean that we want to fight the good fight when it comes to moral purity in our minds. We don't ever want to find ourselves among those who are going to be subjects of the wrath of God because we thought we were saved, but we really weren't. This is what the New Testament says about God's wrath. Kind of direct. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked in according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now works and the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature, what were we called? Before we knew the Lord, we were by nature children of wrath. That's a New Testament passage, right? So is the God of the New Testament a God of wrath? Yes. Because he's the same God as the God of the Old Testament. And it's serious that Christians are supposed, Christians, unbelievers are certainly to flee from the wrath of God. And Christians are supposed to examine themselves to make sure that they will never face the wrath of God. So this is a very relevant thing. It's a part of God that we worship to recognize that he's a very dangerous God. He doesn't have to be toyed with or treated lightly. Um, so uh, the Thessalonian uh, Christians, in First Thessalonians 1.9, it says, they, they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Remember, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and await for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from, what's going to be the next phrase? The, can you guess? The wrath of God. Do you see what I'm trying to point out here? The New Testament is full of references to the wrath of God. It is good for people to think of God as a God of wrath. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's useful. It's helpful. That's the way we're supposed to live. We fear God. He's not a toothless God. He's the Lion of Judah, not a kitty cat curled up at your feet. One, one preacher, I'm not in the mood to name names today, maybe another day, he says that he only gives one simple truth per sermon. I don't disagree with that as a basic idea. I understand the wisdom of that, but that one simple truth, this pastor, never, it never is the judgment of God. It never is the wrath of God. Never. It's always the happy text of Scripture. So if a preacher preaches a God, never talks about God's judgment, God's holiness, God's wrath, or God's justice, then he's distorting the character of God, and he will answer to God, and that's a very serious thing to do, and it won't work pragmatically for him. It will not be good for people. Not good for you to sit under preaching where nobody ever talks about hell, nobody ever talks about wrath, nobody ever talks about judgment, nobody ever talks about holiness, nobody ever talks about God's justice. That's a distortion of who God is. You're wasting your time. You're actually being deceived, the Bible says. Another very, very popular pastor has written a very popular book that denies the reality of hell and another book suggesting that one day all will be saved whether or not they believed in Jesus. And these are popular best-selling authors published by Christian publishing houses. Wake up. They're not talking about the God of the Bible. They're not talking about the Bible, the Bible we're reading today. They, they kind of have a toothless kind of hippie God the God of the Bible expressed in Jesus is not weak. He's not effeminate. He's not indecisive. He's not a passive hippie. He's not weightless. 
When we write a Christian song or when we preach or when we teach or when we witness, we don't have the right to declaw God. God is not a harmless, toothless, senile, benign old grandfather who's like up in the, the heavens wringing his hands, hoping that all of his children will have a good time and like him and not forget his birthday. God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely righteous. God is absolutely and eternally just. He is the judge of the universe Everyone will face one day. And if he did not or could not be, he would not be worthy of our worship. We wouldn't sing songs about him. If you go to a mosque today, and I wouldn't, or on a Friday, and I wouldn't, do you know one thing that they will not be doing in a mosque ever, ever? They never do this in a mosque. They never do, Pastor Stephen, they never do what we did over and over again today. They don't sing Because they don't have a Jesus to talk about. They don't have a cross to talk about. They don't have the one who satisfied the wrath of God. They've got no song. They have no God. Christians, Christians, however, have a God worthy of worship because he isn't a toothless old grandfather. He is a holy, just, righteous, worthy God. Jesus was meek, and Jesus was tender, and Jesus was filled with kindness, and Jesus was filled with love. But he was also dangerous if you were hypocritical or unrepentant or or if you were oppressive or if you were unjust. You wouldn't want to cross him. You wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley if you were an oppressor. And let's remember that he blessed children, and Jesus healed people, and he fed the hungry But he began his ministry and he ended his ministry symbolically by cleansing the temple. I wanted this to be a place where people pray. And I'm cleansing the temple. He started his ministry. That was bold. He walks in town and he goes and cleanses the temple. It was manly, right? And the last thing, his last official act was he cleanses it again. This is my place and you're mistreating it. This is the Jesus of the Bible, not the toothless hippie. Little kitty cat curl up at your feet, Jesus, of, uh, of popular culture. Of, of, of even a lot of Christian preachers and Christian music, of God isn't really very dangerous. You know, C.S. Lewis had it right. About Jesus, he says in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he says, he is not a safe lion. Remember that? He is not a safe lion. He's dangerous. I wouldn't want to worship a safe lion, a kitty cat at my feet. I wouldn't want to worship a toothless old hippie that was kind of like couldn't, execute judgment or righteousness. It wasn't dangerous. It wouldn't be worthy. It wouldn't stir our hearts up in worship. And I cringe when I hear preachers who are eager to condemn and they never tell of God's love. I cringe when I hear preachers that are only condemning and only judgment and only wrath and only hell. I hate that. I cringe at that. That's a distortion. It's not right. It's wrong. But I also nauseated by those who are all mercy and all love and all kindness, and they never choose a warning text of Scripture. Jesus was not like that, and we have no right to be like that either and call ourselves his representatives. Jesus had this perfect symmetry, this perfect balance of love and justice and righteousness. And when we preach and when we give the gospel, then we look at the eyes of people. We, have, we should do it the apostolic way, the way the apostles did it. They always called boldly for repentance and to turn from sin. And they always offered mercy. They never offered mercy without repentance. They, ever, they never told people to repent without offering God's mercy. It's really, really simple. I'm going to give you some biblical examples of this, uh, Acts 3, 
says, repent and return. This is Acts 3, 18, verse 19. Repent, therefore, apostolic preaching, that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's both there. Do you see it? Kind of wrath and love are both there. Repent, turn from your sin. Then the time of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. That's the way it is. It's not like, oh, Jesus wants to bless you without your repentance. No, he's not going to bless you without repentance. It's not all repent. It's repent and times of refreshing. Every soul that does not heed that prophet will be utterly destroyed from the people. Acts 2.38, repent. Acts 17, he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. First Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear during this time of your stay upon earth. Second Peter says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with a fervent heat. The heavens will be destroyed with burning. And the elements will melt with a fervent heat. The wrath of God, the justice of God, the vengeance of God. Think about it like this when you watch the evening news. It's a great comfort in the world that we live in to know that ISIS people are going to face the just wrath of God someday. And the people that dismember little babies and sell their body parts are going to face a holy God someday. God isn't uh, indecisive about what he thinks about that. And so that's a comfort to us to think that. Those who practice and defend things that are perverse will answer to God. Listen to what Psalm 73, 16 and 20 through 20. When I pondered to understand this, in other words, he's talking about the prosperity of the wicked. When I pro- tried to understand this, it was troubling my spirit. But then until I came to the sanctuary of God and I remembered what? Their, their end. In other words, they're going to face the wrath of God. In Romans 12, verses 17 through 21 says, leave room for the wrath of God. is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And 2 Peter 2.9 says, keep the unrighteous, he will keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And Hebrews 12 says, offer God an acceptable service and reverence and all because our God is a consuming fire. And then there you have the revelation. This is the consummation. This is the great climax of the whole Bible. This is the end of the New Testament. And it, it, it ends with a ringing clarity about the justice of God's wrath. Repeated over and over again. Revelation 14, the wine of God's fury, the cup of his wrath. Revelation 14, 19, the great wine press of the wrath of God. Revelation 15, 1, God's wrath is completed. Revelation 15, 7, filled with the wrath of God forever and ever. Revelation 16, 1 says, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Revelation 6, we're going to study this together. And Revelation 6 through 19 we believe is a time when God is just in, in many ways pouring out wrath upon the earth. This is the Old Testament, New Testament God. This is the current God of the Bible, Jesus. Revelation 16, 19 says that about, talks about the fury of God's wrath in, in 1915, the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The rulers of the earth sometimes puff out their chest and they, they, they defy God. They, they violate God's ways. They deny God's truth. They disregard God's word. They make laws in disregard to the great lawgiver himself. Rulers of the earth commonly do this. The Bible says that there will be a time in Revelation when the rulers of the earth cry out for mountains to fall on them to save them from what? The wrath of the lamb. Who is that? Everybody knows that's Jesus. When is that? Is that past or future? That's future. All the rulers of the earth one day who do not voluntarily bow to him will one day cry out for the mountains to fall on them to be saved from the wrath of the Lamb. It's very real. 
They hid themselves, verse 12 through 17, Revelation 6, in caves and among rocks and mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb of God, for the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And then when you see the picture of Jesus getting on a horse and riding to earth from heaven, it's a scary picture. It's a powerful picture. He judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, hallelujah, and he has the name written upon him which no one except himself knows. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is the word of God, and the armies which are in heaven clothed with fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh a name is written. Who is this man? King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is he? This is Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus that America needs to reckon with. This is the Jesus that Barack Obama needs to reckon with. This is the Jesus that the Supreme Court is going to face in a Supreme Court someday. This is the Jesus that you and I are going to face someday. This perfectly righteous, holy Jesus whose wrath is perfect as his love is the Jesus of the Bible. That's what the scriptures take. And this Jesus, does he sound harmless? Does he sound weightless? Does he sound toothless? Does he sound benign? Does he sound like a, a household pet to you? What hope is there when we realize that God's absolute holiness is on all sin, not just the abortion doctor, not just the homosexual practicer, but also the selfish gossip, the person that's living for their own little kingdom? There is, what, what hope is there for us? Who, uh, who in the world here sitting in a pew this morning could say, not to worry, I've satisfied the total just holiness of God and his righteousness and his justice. I've perfectly satisfied God's justice. I don't fear his wrath. Who in the right mind would ever want to say that? What hope is there for you? What hope is there for me? When Jesus Christ shows up in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who don't know God, What hope is there for you? What hope is there for me? There is a cosmic crossroad in the world. There's a place, the Bible says, where absolute justice and infinite mercy met. There's one and only place in all of the cosmos, in all of the world, in all of history, and in all of time where God's absolute justice and his infinite mercy met in one place. And they call that place Calvary. This is a hymn that was popular in the Welsh revival. When people are close to God, they love the cross. They love this cosmic crossroad where God's infinite mercy and God's absolute holiness and justice met in Jesus bore our sin. And they write songs about it. Here's a song that captured the heart of the Welsh people. And then it went all around the world. Here's love, vast as an ocean, loving kindness like a flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, Who is love will not remember. Who can cease to sing his praise? He will never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Jesus, that's your hope. The one who was nailed to that cross who never sinned. 
died for you so that you could live for him. He took your sin and put his absolute perfect righteousness on you so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the sweet righteousness of Jesus. The floodgates of heaven open. The love of God poured out in mercy on the cross. And there on the crossroads of the cosmos, Jesus bore the wrath of God for your sin. And you kneel there once and you leave changed forever and forever. And so the good news is, God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The just, Romans 3 and verse 26 says, he is the just and the justifier of him who believes. He is the just and he is the justifier. That's the amen part, folks, right there. That's where you like burst into applause for Jesus. That's where you say amen to Jesus. I'm there. I nailed at the cross. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I was guilty and condemned. I deserve to die. I will live the rest of my life in your service, King Jesus, because you died for my sin. If you're here today and you're still on your way to face the wrath of God, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you not run to Jesus and accept this free offer of salvation and righteousness? If you're a half-hearted Christian, how in the world can you be a half-hearted Christian knowing what you know about God? How could you serve God at half speed? How could you possibly have a, a lame, worthless prayer life or rarely witness to somebody or leave your Bible gathering dust if this Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus who died on the cross for you? How beautiful is his redemption how sweet and beautiful it is. It's a, it's a theme in literature that no one ever tires of. So in New York City one night, there's an old judge, and he's on the bench, and he's judging the night court. And the judge is up there on the bench in the night court, and in they bring a man, an old, bent, broken man. And he's guilty. He's guilty of theft. He stole a loaf of bread. And the judge says, tell me if you're guilty. And the old man with a trembling voice says, I'm guilty. Why did you steal the bread? He said, I was hungry. The judge says, drops the gavel, and he says, you are guilty, and you must pay the certain fine. Then after he drops the gavel, and he says that he must pay the certain fine, the judge leaves the bench, and he comes down, and he takes his own wallet out, and he pays the old man's fine. And then he takes a hat, and he passes around the courtroom, and he says, I fine every one of you here for living in a city where an old man has to steal bread who's hungry. Jesus, why does that story stir our hearts? Because that's a tiny little literary figure of what Jesus Christ did for us. We look into our judge's face and see a Savior there. Amen? And amen.